What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. History is so boring. Such a common complaint for kids, and I'm sure that most of us, at one time or another, have found history to be boring. As a teacher, I know that I'm even prone to focus on the dry dates and names of history instead of the interesting stories. To make history interesting, I know we have to get back to the stories that give history the emotion and action that really make it cool. A new series by one of my favorite authors, Steve Scheinekin, does that very thing. He puts the fun and stories back into history, but with a great twist. Scheinekin really knows how boring history can be because he used to write textbooks, which we all know has the dry stuff that makes history really dull. But Scheinekin has put that sad past behind him and now writes fun history, like the new Time Twister series. Siblings Doc and Abby think history is dull. But when Abraham Lincoln overhears that the class wants to do math worksheets instead of reading history, he pops into the school and warns the kids that if they don't shape up, he's going to make history really dull. Despite their best efforts, Doc and Abby can't convince the class. So they all read about Lincoln walking and reading a newspaper. But when Doc and Abby realize that if Lincoln steps out of history, how bad things could become, they try to convince him to return, even though Lincoln decides that he wants to stay and become a pro wrestler instead. Putting history back in its place is hard, but oh so fun, and Doc and Abby will have much more fun as other historical figures get in in their heads that they can be things like pirates and cowboys. So if you want to inject a little fun in history, take this recommendation from Rachel's World and check out Steve Scheinekin's Abraham Lincoln Pro Wrestler or Abigail Adams' Pirate of the Caribbean, just two books in the Time Twister series that show just how fun history can be. Today's children's and young adult literature ranges from tales of knights, dragons, and wizards to dystopian societies, mystery humor, and the like. Children's lit in the 1700s and earlier was focused on moralizing. Stories simply had to teach a lesson. Today on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel Wadham welcomes Jamie Horrocks, BYU English professor and an expert in Victorian literature and culture. Horrocks talks about the golden age of children's literature that dawned in Victorian Great Britain. Society had begun to realize that children have a sense of wonder and imagination. Children were more than little people in need of preaching. Jamie Horrocks researches Victorian aesthetics and the intersection of literature and art, especially in the late 19th century. She has published on Oscar Wilde, Vernon Lee, Virginia Woolf, and the aesthetic movement. Here's Rachel and Jamie Horrocks. We're in studio with Jamie today. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, thanks. I am just excited to talk to you today. I have a passion for children's literature, as my listeners will know, and particularly a a strong passion for the beautiful history that has kind of got us where we are today. And that's one of your areas of expertise, is the wonderful development of Victorian children's literature and how we got these wonderful books that a lot of us remember, like Peter Pan and Alice and The Wind in the Willows and some of those wonderful stories that we'll all remember. So to start out, tell us a little bit about 
this era of children's literature and what you personally find so fascinating about it. Right. So the Victorian era is sometimes considered the golden age of children's lit. Uh, Children's literature wasn't invented in the 19th century or in Britain, um, but it was only invented a little bit earlier than that. It was in the 1700s, early 1700s, that children first got their own books. Before then, there were lots of books that children could read, fables, fairy tales, a lot of like Bible stories. Um, But it wasn't until the 18th century that people began to market books specifically toward children. So as it became easier to produce, to mass produce books, Um, And as sort of conceptions of the child and of childhood started to change through the 1700s and early 1800s, more and more children's books um, were published across the UK. I think that is one of the things that is fascinating is that this really is kind of a young audience focus. We we don't see a you know a history into you know the 1500s or back. This was really something that was invented in kind of that 18th century kind of conception of what childhood is and how we interact with stories. So how do you think that those kind of Victorian changes and how they viewed children in childhood actually helped develop this great new format for just children's audiences. So those earlier texts that were addressed in any way toward children, and I'm talking about in like the 17th century, maybe even the the 16th century, um, they focused heavily on uh, moral didacticism. And there was this sort of lingering religious idea that children were born in sin, and therefore any kind of literature being taught to them or shared with them needed to focus on saving their souls, redeeming them from the sin that they were steeped in. But once you get to really Rousseau in the 18th century um, and then uh, the Romantics um, shortly after that, you start getting this conception of the child as not fallen and needing to be redeemed, but as a kind of idealized creature, free from the corruption of society, free from all of the bad stuff that kind of clings on to you as you get older, and more pure, more innocent. And so that really changes the kinds of books that people aim at children, because they no longer need to save them, right? They need to sort of develop this sense of imagination and wonder and creativity that comes to be associated with childhood. And I think that's important to think about when you when you start thinking, you know, what is a Victorian's children children's book versus an earlier model? Um, yes, Victorian children's lit is still highly didactic and moralizing, but there's this sort of romantic sensibility that childhood is a special time. It's a different time from adulthood. You can't just you know, talk about children as if they were mini adults, um, but that you wanted to cultivate something good that was in the child. I I think that Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland are great examples of exactly what you're talking about, how it really is this sense of romanticizing childhood and and showing how childhood develops into adulthood. Do you think that those authors that were writing at this period were really thinking about those things? Or was it just the natural kind of part of what the culture was doing? And so these stories just came out more naturally? Or is it a kind of combination of both? It's probably a combination of both. But the two examples that you give, um, so Lewis Carroll, uh, who wrote the Alice books, and then Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, both of them specifically were thinking about a new version of children's lit. And you can see that, for example, in in the Alice books. Lewis Carroll takes a lot of those traditional uh, moralizing poems that children used to have to memorize, and he uh, parodies them or inverts them. So you find Alice like saying these little silly parodic versions of that or, or 
earlier kind of children's lit. So you can tell from that that Lewis knows about that earlier style of lit. That is, it's, it's all about instructing the child. And he's sort of laughing at it and making fun of it um, through his books. Barry, in the same way, um, who gives us, you know, the famous child who won't leave childhood, the boy who won't grow up, I think is also very self-consciously thinking about childhood as as this state that is so good, you don't want to leave it, um, which, you know, re- reflects, I, I think, a whole century of thinking about childhood. When we look at these books, I think it's wonderful to look at them within that context. And and as a critic and kind of historical person who looks at books with that historical context, how do you think reading it with that frame, particularly as we read it as adults and looking back on how the Victorians looked at childhood and how the changes were happening, why do you think it's important for us to kind of analyze it within that kind of historical context? Um, You know, I think thinking about them as historical texts or in a historical tradition um, gives us a better way for thinking about the kinds of things that children are being taught in these particular books. Um, I don't think any children's lit in the 19th century gets completely away from wanting to instill some sort of lesson, right? But um, you can very clearly see that as you get closer toward the 19th century or toward the end of the 19th century, the books that are popular, so books like uh, Peter Pan, but also like Stevenson's books, Treasure Island, Kidnapped and that kind of stuff, these are not books that are intended to teach children to uh, respect your elders or to study hard at school, right? Um, losing that kind of connection to morality, to didacticism, Uh, is part of placing these books in a historical context. And so the things that we may like less about earlier forms of children's lit, like, for example, um, there was a very popular book that came out in the middle of the 19th century called Water Babies that was just beloved by generations of children. We don't like it as much today because it's part of that older tradition of kind of moralizing didactic literature, whereas something like Treasure Island, still people are remaking and adapting in in new film versions because that's left that tradition. And so you have to have have a kind of a historical sense of what's going on here to realize, you know, why we like the things we like about this lit and why we're uncomfortable with the things we're uncomfortable about. I think that's a wonderful way to look at it, particularly as we look towards the modern conceptions of it, because I think a lot of times when we as adults look at literature or how a literature affects our children, we look at that sense of what is it teaching and how is it moralizing those types of things. When when you read them as a scholar, do you take these books from a particular frame like that? Or are you looking at them for the story or all of the above? Just describe to us that kind of scholarly approach mm-hmm. that you take. So these are books that I teach often in my uh, English lit classes uh, because the students, most of them know them already. They love them. They already have this connection with them. But as a literary critic, I'm very interested in uh, cultural context, as, as we've already sort of mentioned. How do these books fit into a larger tradition of, of British literature? And I'm particularly interested in the way that these kinds of books reflect what adults think children are like. It's very hard to look at a children's book and say, well, this is what it was like to be a child in 1850 or 1870. It's hard to do that. But it's very easy to look at these books and say, this is what adults thought children thought like, or this is what adults thought children liked or disliked. Um, You mentioned uh, The Wind in the Willows earlier, right? It's a little bit later. um, in, in the early 20th century. That text is is completely 
uh, divorced from a Christian context, right? You would never read it and think, oh, I'm being taught this little moral lesson, right? The story, if if your listeners aren't familiar, it's sort of these animals who live kind of on the riverside and have adventures with each other. And the interaction of the animals themselves becomes its own kind of moral lesson. So without having to say, you should be kind to others, you shouldn't make fun of people who are different from you, right? The interactions of the animals provides a really nice, safe space for children to learn those basic moral lessons. But at the same time, a book like Treasure Island – a little bit earlier than Wind in the Willows, Treasure Island is a very difficult and and sort of ambiguous text. Um, Jim, the main character, doesn't really have good role models. Um, He's traumatized by his experience. He speaks about the nightmares that he has. When he's sort of forced into the situation of having to kill a pirate, he's horrified by it. He's horrified by looking at the dead man he has killed. And so a book like that, which which kids loved reading about – if adults read carefully, I'm not sure they would have been totally comfortable with. I would agree with you. I think sometimes looking back at some of these stories and even Peter Pan and Alice mm-hmm. in Wonderland, I look at some of the the things that happen or the way they're presented and I think, I'm, I'm really shocked that this is a children's book in some right. ways. But they just they have this lasting, wonderful history that has come so far. So as we close up our conversation today, just tell me why. Why do you think they've lasted? What is it about these stories that make them so wonderful and timeless? You know, we haven't yet mentioned illustrations. And I think something about um, our love for these books is that traditionally they've always been illustrated and that they've generally been illustrated beautifully in in sort of deluxe gift editions even. Um, and the beautiful pictures that go along with them, I think they, they influence us as children before we read, as we're sort of following someone else reading to us via the pictures. Um, but then they become lodged in our memory along with the text. So there's this sort of visual beauty um, along with the beauty of the story itself. Um, and I think that needs to be sort of mentioned as, as part of the reason we love these books. Um, and the narratives themselves hold together so nicely. They're seamless narratives. They're easy to read and easy to like. A sign of a good children's book, I think, is multiple layers of complexity so that a very young child could like something like the Jungle Book stories. A little bit older child could understand a little bit more or something a little bit different. A teenager can go back to that book and get yet another kind of nuanced meaning from it. Um, that's a good children's book to me is one that you can keep going back to and finding new levels of complexity in it. So let's all go back to these wonderful Victorian classics and find that complexity. Thank you so much, Jamie, for bringing your expertise to the table today. You're very welcome. Jamie Horrocks, specialist in Victorian literature and culture from the BYU English Department, talking about the golden age of children's literature in Victorian England. Up next, Rachel chats with children's and young adult literature expert Karen Coates about contemporary mysteries for children. What's really in this genre for kids? What speaks to young minds the most? Karen Coates is a professor of English at Illinois State University. She publishes widely on the many ways youth literature both responds to and shapes contemporary culture. She's also author of multiple books on children's literature, including the Bloomsbury Introduction to Children's and Young Adult Literature. Here's Rachel with Karen Coates. We're on the phone today with Karen. Welcome, Karen. Hello, Rachel. It's good to be here. Oh, it's such an honor to have you here, Karen. I 
would like to kind of pick your brain today a little bit about contemporary mysteries. I think mysteries are really a key genre for a lot of people, and I particularly love them. I know lots of kids that I know love them. So when we talk about contemporary mysteries, um, particularly those for children and those that children would be reading today, how do you see them as a little different maybe than some of the more classic things that that, uh, their parents or grandparents might have read? Well, I, I see contemporary mystery going in two very distinct directions. And one of them is toward more realistic addressing fears that are really contemporary. So, for instance, um, there are some mysteries that, that go in the direction of, well, this is something I've, I've noticed in a lot of the books that I read that are young adult, is that we're re- we keep revisiting the Little Red Riding Hood myth where we have girls who are under attack from predators in the woods. (laughs) And this happens over and over and over again, Um, this idea that that girls are somehow vulnerable and vanishing. And so I think that that's an interesting phenomenon that's counterbalanced with girl detectives who are actually um, figuring out the mystery and saving themselves rather than needing to be rescued. So, in other words, we've got, the, we've got the myth of Red Riding Hood that can go one of two ways. She's either eaten by the wolf and killed, or she's rescued by the, the kindly woodsman. And so that kind of addresses this fear that we have that not just girls, but all of us in a world marked by terrorism, that we're um, afraid, you know, that, that things could look very placid on the surface, and yet there are predators. And so that's, that's one direction that I, I see is a lot more realism, a lot darker realism, a lot of um, really kind of scary villains who are motivated by um, aberrant psychologies, not motivated by the usual just I want money. It's I've got some sort of deep, dark mental problem that, um, that is motivating me to do these horrible things. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, we have, um, we have a lot of humor. <laughs> that's in, and, and, then, and some of this is the humorous supernatural. Like, for instance, the Scarlet Wakefield series, which is reminiscent of the boarding school mysteries of Agatha Christie, except that it's contemporary and it mixes humor with murder, <laughs> which sounds like a weird mix. But... Um, um, Michelle Jaffe does the same thing. She has a series called Bad Kitty. And they're wildly funny, and they're very entertaining. And it, it almost makes you think, wow, I just laughed my way through a murder mystery. <laughs> so you feel a little guilty. So there are guilty pleasures for that. Um, so those are two directions that I see, that one is this kind of dark, melancholy strain where um, young women are under attack. And then there's the, the funny, quippy detective and I think Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, has a lot to answer for there. That she's she's um, competent and and funny and um, gets the job done. So there's there's those two strains. Then we also have though the unexplained mystery, the mystery that at the end it's never fully solved. We don't know. For instance, the Goosebumps series is is they use a lot of conventional horror tropes and. That is not as popular as it was in its heyday in the 80s, but some of the newer mysteries for middle grade and for young adults 
pull up those mysterious tropes. And sure enough, we, we still have a lot of the explained supernatural, things that appeared supernatural, that were playing on fears, folkloric fears, but then get explained by, you know, somebody who said we would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> that. um, so that's there. With um, Rosemary Clement Moore does a really nice job with that, um, and some of these other authors who are playing on um, gothic tropes but saying that really these gothic tropes are not supernatural. They're explainable by other means. But even there, uh, some of the books that, um, that don't advertise themselves as mysteries, like I'm thinking of the Nikki and Deja series, which is a, um, an early reader series featuring two African-American girls. And um, sometimes there are mysteries that happen in their daily lives, like when... Um, I think it's Deja, no, I think it was Nikki who puts the um, invitations to her party in everybody's cubbies, and they get stolen, and that mystery's never solved. And I think that's, that's interesting, because they kind of know who did it, but they can't prove it, and so they just have to deal with the consequences, rather than bring the fugitive to justice. <laughs> it's the mean girl. We all know that. But it, she yeah. never gets caught. <laughs> and, and that's the interesting thing to me about missed contemporary mysteries particularly is they so much more reflect the real world, I guess, is the way I would phrase it, because not every mystery does get solved and not every criminal does get caught. And so I think it these contemporary mysteries are really reflecting a more contemporary societal understanding of the complexities of our world. W- would you agree with that? I do. I do. In fact, um, and, I, and I would actually put that at the sort of at the, the what I would call it is sort of a postmodern turn. It's this idea since maybe the world wars that life isn't this looming battle to be faced and fought and once for all we can solve all our problems. It's it's the idea that life is a series of, of assaults and offers, and how we deal with them reflects our character and, and helps us develop our, our moral and ethical stance and, and helps us understand the limits of our knowledge. Because I think that we, we had sort of a crisis of faith that goes all the way down, that we thought that human knowledge was going to save the world, and it didn't, and it and it. And it actually enabled us to, to be more horrible. Nowadays, we, we talk a lot about empathy and how reading helps develop empathy. Well, knowing how you feel, knowing how someone else feels, yes, reading does develop that. But it doesn't necessarily guide your moral behavior after you figured that out. I mean, you could read a mystery novel as an instruction manual for murder if you wanted, <laughs> but and especially, um, or but you could also. What, what I'm saying here is that is that our morality is separate from our empathy. So knowledge has been disentangled, I suppose, from morality. It's also been disentangled from um, hubris, the idea that we can know everything. We can know some things. But there are some things we're just going to have to leave in the mystery category. We can't figure everything out. That insight is so telling, particularly for our kids today, because I think part of what they need is that understanding that it may not be as clear-cut 
as we once thought it would be. So do you think that these kinds of mysteries bring that to kids? Is that one of the, I guess you'd say, benefits that we see from having this genre for children? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things that happens in middle grade or for middle grade readers is their world becomes so big, and especially today with their access to the Internet, there's so much information coming at them all the time, and that produces anxiety. So reading mysteries where the case gets solved is, in fact, a way to give them confidence that there are some things, some cases that can be closed. But reading these more open-ended mysteries apprentices them into thinking that I'm not going to be able to handle everything, and I need to find some strategy to cope with that. And that's something that we all need in contemporary society, because we're faced with so much complexity, just a barrage of information that wants to make us accountable for it. And that is what's producing this this anxiety culture, I would call it. So kids are entering into that. So books that show, yeah, some things can be solved, some things can't, gives them permission to not take responsibility for everything and give us a different kind of model for our relationship to knowledge, that it's not always going to be complete and we're going to have to just deal with it. That's a wonderful note to close on today, Karen. I There are so many things we just have to deal with, and I'm very grateful that there are great writers out there of great literature, particularly mysteries, who, who can help our kids model some of these skills and to see how things might play out in different contexts. I think that that's one of the key things that, that literature provides. So thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to your audience, and um, I thank you very much for inviting me. Literature expert Karen Coates, talking about the characteristics of contemporary children's mystery books. Finally, on today's installment of World's Awaiting, an introduction to the television series Hetty Feather, adapted from Jacqueline Wilson's books by the Children's BBC. It will be airing on our sister station, BYU-TV, on March 18th, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Now, we'd like to introduce you to Hetty through some sounds and music from the actual TV series. My name is Hetty Feather. Away with her brother. If Gideon stays, I stay. He's my family brother. Mitchell! Here's Feather is attempting to abscond. Escape? With her family and brother, sir. The night watch must be sleeping. We have to find them, Mr. Crumble. Yes, Mitchell. She's either hidden it or she's got it on her. We need Hetty Feather. For you and Gideon to go back. Call me Matron. Matron Bottomley. 
tonight. Gideon's coming with us. The escape. It's back on. If you can't keep this hospital on an even keel, I'm going to have to find someone else to take command. Matthias, see you around. No, if I see you first. Don't mock. It's not my real name, but not much about me has ever been real. An introduction to Hetty Feather, a children's book series by Jacqueline Wilson, adapted for television by the children's BBC, that will be airing on BYU-TV and BYUtv.org. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at BYUradio.org.